You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. The last six days of war in Ukraine have shattered the post-Cold War order in Europe. Today, our guest is Senator Mark Warner, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, one of the best informed people about the situation in Ukraine, uh, in the U.S. Congress. Senator Warner, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, David. So, Senator, let's begin with the situation on the battlefield uh, at this hour, as you know it. Uh, What is the the sense you have uh, from the information you're getting about how long Kiev can stand uh, the Russian onslaught and and whether Kharkiv is now uh, in Russian control? Well, David, um, I want to answer that question, but let me, I'm thinking a lot about this, put two framing thoughts in place. One, you know, understandably, there's been enormous amounts of anguish and angst about political discourse in our in our country over the last couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen debates about whether democracy and democracies uh, can hold their own in the 21st century. Um, we wondered whether Western values uh, still will carry weight. What I think we've seen play out not only over the last few days, uh, but over the last few weeks, is that uh, the people of Ukraine are being attacked simply because they wanted to stand with the West, because they embrace those democratic values. And we've seen as well, literally people in nations all over the world stand up not only against Putin's aggression, but also to say those very values of freedom and transparency, democracy, are what people embrace. And I think we don't know how this is all going to play out, but that macro question of democracy versus authoritarianism, at least the people of Ukraine and President Zelensky has answered that resolutely. I know a number of us were wondering a question the other day in the Intelligence Committee, was Zelensky going to be Ghani, the Afghan leader who cut and run, once the Taliban started to move forward, or was he going to be Churchill? And so far, he has been Churchillian in, in his response. The second so, point I just want to raise, David, let me just let me just make the second point very briefly. I want to answer, and I do want to get to the question of what's on the ground. Nine days ago, when you and I were in Munich, and we were trying to make the case that this was a real threat to our NATO friends and allies and others at the security conference, if you would have asked me, nine days later, even though the American intelligence was 100% spot on almost to the day of when Putin attacked, I don't think we could have expected, one, the Ukrainian resistance, but two, that there would be sanctions placed on Nord Stream 2, that Putin and Lavrov would be literally joined that gallery of rogues like uh, uh, Qaddafi and, and Assad in terms of being personally sanctioned, that we'd have SWIFT led by the Europeans kicking the Russians' banks out, that we'd see a a seizing of the central bank assets and cutting off that, that we'd actually see the Swiss government join this coalition and kind of below the radar things like Kazakhstan, a traditionally strong ally of Russia, refused to sanction Putin's activities. Now, on the ground, uh, how long can the Ukrainians resist is a a bit of an open question. Uh, The Russians are only now throwing the last third of their troops uh, into the fray, and I've been pleasantly surprised so far, but surprised would be the word that Russia has not 
launched more major cyber attacks against Ukraine or brought down the internet so that we could, those incredible images of Ukrainians' resistance is getting out to the rest of the world. Um, but you know, this, is by, this conflict is by no means over. And the overwhelming power of the Russian military in a longer struggle, um, uh, it's hard to not see how they don't continue to make some level of advances. Let me ask you about one of the intelligence questions that's arisen in this first week of war, and that's whether the Russians have, have done worse on the battlefield than they and we expected. What do you hear in terms of assessment of the performance of Russian forces? I think they've done absolutely worse than what we expected, what the world expected, what the West expected. Uh, I think that is, you know, in, until you know, conflict is actually engaged. The, the Ukrainian will to fight potentially was questioned. But I think Zelensky, you know, who once again bested Putin at his game of information warfare with those images of him with his leadership team standing in fatigues, defending their city, has ended up also getting literally thousands of Ukrainians to step forward. I wish, as we discussed, David, that uh, President Zelensky had actually called up his reserves earlier and fully mobilized. But in the interim, you've seen the Ukrainian people step up. And I think Putin has been astonishingly arrogant and miscalculated both the will to resist, the fact that he only you know, brought a third of his troops, that he thought he could do this potentially on a, such a surgical basis. I don't believe there was the equivalent of shock and awe. Um, he, I think he could felt he could march right in and repeat Crimea. Uh, we've seen that as well in terms of not bringing his A-team in terms of cyber attacks. And I think this may be the result of uh, Putin, who, as you know as well, you know, over the last couple of years, he's been very COVID-phobic. Um, he's more and more isolated. There's less and less inputs. The inputs are mostly coming from sycophants who don't want to get the boss mad. And if there's anything that the West has seen, and frankly, I got to believe the Russian people has seen as well, is uh, every image of Putin is he is sitting at one end of the table, and whether it's visiting uh, French presidents or his advisors. I saw a picture today of a half dozen economic advisors sitting at one end of the table, him sitting at the other. This is an isolated authoritarian leader who is, uh, I think, becoming more and more disconnected even from his own um, Russian leadership. We're showing our viewers that same picture, Senator, that you tweeted today. And you accompanied your tweet saying, photos like this confirm everything we all know. Putin is separated from his advisors and increasingly isolated. That kind of decision maker who's isolated from advice, from real assessments of what's happening on the battlefield can be dangerous. Isn't that so? Absolutely. And particularly when you say that leader has control over the um, one of the largest nuclear stockpiles in the world. I just want to take this a little bit further because I think the whole world is focused on Putin, his aggression, but also uh, his 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 character right now. Um, your colleague, Senator uh, Rubio from the Intelligence Committee, uh, tweeted on Friday that uh, Putin's rationality, uh, he said, I, I wish I could uh, share more, but for now, it's pretty obvious that something is off with Putin. Can you help us understand what what, what is uh, just going going off, going wrong, uh, isolating him from his advisors? How should we understand this? Well, David, obviously, as chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, I'm not going to comment on any specific intelligence. 
but these images speak for themselves. The images of meeting with foreign leaders or with his own leaders uh, removed with his, frankly, takedown of some of his Security Council members when they didn't answer the way he wanted to and their berating of those officials. Some of the looks on some of the uh, Russian senior military's faces um, as he makes his pronouncements. And again, the, in the public reporting we've seen for the last two years, uh, again, whether this is COVID phobic or the fact of 20 years in power as an unquestioned authoritarian, um, more and more uh, removal. He stayed in Sochi or he's been at his dacha outside of Moscow. Um, and I, I believe this underestimation is not only in regard to what he thought the Ukrainian level of resistance would be, um, but also in terms of what the world's reaction has been. And, and for that matter, even the reaction of his of his own people. Now, the, the level of discontent in a controlled authoritarian regime like Russia has been relatively small to date. But when you start to see oligarchs, some of the people who Putin has enriched at outrageous rates, um, starting to question and uh, whether this is the right approach, um, you know, I, I think it's got to take him back a bit. So, Senator, let me ask you about one particularly uh, worrying uh, aspect of, of Putin's uh, behavior and decision making, and, th and that was his announcement over the weekend that he was putting Russian nuclear forces on high alert. And the Pentagon responded by saying that was unnecessary. There was no U.S. or other threat to Russia that would that would warrant it. First, what's your assessment of of, of Putin's decision? Second. How should the U.S. respond? If, if Russia is, is putting its forces on alert, uh, there's an argument that we need to similarly uh, be ready for the worst and, and go on alert ourselves. What do you think? Well, in the public reporting, and as recently as just in the last hour or so, public reporting, and no indication that he has significantly moved up um, uh, that alert status or deployed uh, further activities in Belarus. Um, I think this is indication of a guy that's uh, on the information ground, on the uh, level of the ground combat in Ukraine, and in the realm of how he's being viewed in the world and what's going to happen to the Russian economy. He's losing on all four of those fronts simultaneously. Uh, and I do think it's appropriate for the American administration, and for that matter, NATO, um, to not again be drawn into what could be possibly a false flag operation of Putin to try to lure us into further conflict. So I think the continuing to send signals to the Russian military and leadership that there is no intention from the United States or, or NATO to escalate, uh, that we actually want to de-escalate, is, is the right tack at this point. Let me ask you about how the Russian people are reacting to these events. Um, I'm sure this is something that's being very carefully monitored by our intelligence agencies. We see public reports of, of some Russian protesters out. It was initially thought as many as 50 cities uh, had had protests of Russians. What's your sense of, of this movement in Russia, whether it's growing, whether it has staying power, uh, and what the Russian authorities are going to do to try to uh, crack down? Well, we've seen that this is a ruthless regime that uh, doesn't mind imprisoning, poisoning, killing people who 
rise up in revolt against Putin. So these individuals in Russia, albeit small protests, I mean, they sh are showing enormous, enormous courage. Uh, I saw today, uh, I thought it was something like 20,000 Russian IT professionals. Now that's on an online petition, um, disagreeing uh, with uh, Putin. You're seeing again, as some of these oligarchs who've gained their ill-gotten billions because of their affinity with Putin, now being squeezed and some of them starting to speak up. You're seeing particularly Russian sports and artists and others around the world speak up against um, Putin's actions. And I particularly think those Russians living abroad in, in music, arts, sports, uh, you know they've still got followers back in Russia uh, and for these individuals to speak up. So again, I don't, do I in, believe that there is any uh, immediate threat to a, a, this regime? Um, no, but as we've seen, um, and I'm not trying to make some comparisons to the uh, uh, the activities that took place with long-term authoritarian regimes in the Middle East, uh, but in, in information age, uh, this can get out of hand very quickly. And clearly, one of the reasons why I think Putin's on his back pedal as much is I believe he thought his false flag operations, his attempt to either have a coup or put up videos showing um, feigned Ukrainian attacks. The American intelligence community, which as you know, David, you, you're an expert on this topic as well, is really reluctant to ever share information. They want to hold things close. Uh, but I commend uh, particularly General Nakasone, uh, Bill Burns, Avril Haines, the whole IC for being willing to say, if there was ever a time to both uh, make clear that this was purely, this invasion was purely uh, put forward by Putin, that there was no Ukrainian efforts to stir up uh, a, a, an event and to actually make the case to our European friends and friends, frankly, for that matter, around the world. We got Japan, Korea, um, Taiwan, Singapore, obviously other Five Eye partners like Australia, New Zealand, all weighing in. When you've got Finland sending weapons, to Ukraine now, uh, I think clearly this is not how Putin expected this to play out. Now, where we go from here, David, is you know that's a that's a huge question. We don't even have to get to the nuclear realm uh, if we simply go back to the cyber realm. Uh, I have been uh, very concerned that he could, as, a, as you did in the early clip, shut down the power in Ukraine, shut off the internet in Ukraine. That could end up because these networks, if you put malware out, it's got a worm to it. It doesn't respect geographic boundaries. It could end up bleeding into Poland or Romania or into the Baltic states uh, and uh, cause damage that would shut down hospitals or potentially you've got American troops there. If American troops in a truck crashed because the, the lights were out, um, you could get very close to Article 5. So we are still in uncharted territory, but I've been surprised so far that he has not ratcheted up in other domains beyond, obviously, the ultimate threat around nuclear. I want to come back in a moment to cyber threats, uh, Senator, but just to continue with the, what you were saying about the use of intelligence uh, to disrupt uh, Putin, uh, to share information that, that our intelligence community collected. I'm assuming uh, that among intelligence professionals, there was initially some resistance at putting out what would normally be code word intelligence, uh, but that in the end, the administration was successful in convincing them. I'm curious whether you and members of the of the intelligence committee 
uh, had any uh, thoughts about that, uh, encouraging the, the dissemination of this information or, or questioning it? Well, David, I've on my intelligence committee, I've got the whole gamut from left to right of folks with political persuasions. And we have been virtually unanimous, both commending the intelligence community, saying you've been spot on, on predicting this, on applauding the fact that I'm sure they're way outside their comfort zone in having this information shared. Um, you know, they obviously need to protect sources and methods, but if there's ever a time to get up the edge when we're talking about uh, at least pushing back uh, against what still ended up being the first major land war in, Russia, in, in Europe since World War II, uh, this was the time to take that kind of risk. And I think the administration, again, I was critical on certain ways the administration handled the Afghanistan uh, exit. But here, the administration has got it right. I mean, remember, as you know, a year ago, NATO was basically broken. The previous president had so undermined it. There were really questions about, again, whether America's resoluteness, uh, even as recently as four months ago, beyond us and the British, uh, the rest of the countries had not fully bought in. They were bought in both because of the American and other intelligence that was shared with them almost real time. They were brought in because there was no ability for Putin to put forward any kind of false flag to blame this on the Ukrainians. And the fact that uh, we now have not only NATO, but countries around the across the globe and frankly, every possible sanction uh, that we could have um, predicted or asked for. And each of these ratcheting up in many cases being led by Europeans. I mean, who would have thought, David, if you, nine days ago when we were in Munich, could you imagine the German chancellor going before the Bundestag and basically saying, we're not only going to send arms to Ukraine, but we're going to try to pass a law to increase our, our defense spending to above 2%? That was unimaginable. It's, it, was, it's, it is an astonishing uh, uh, change and, and a welcome one, especially to, to the uh, Ukrainians. Just to ask you a question, standing back from this crisis, what we've seen in this the release of intelligence information and the disruptive effect it's had, in a sense, is the power of the truth in this new contested information space. Uh, this information has just broken right through. Do you think that we should, uh, United States should con consider continuing that approach, making more information available, going past the usual uh, guardrails that uh, intelligence community professionals have to, to share more of what we know. Absolutely, and and David, this is not this is where our focus should be right now. Ukraine, Russia, uh, the war there, but my committee has for years now, um, particularly when when I've partnered with. Uh, Senator Burr, when he is chairman of the committee, and Senator Rubio and I have done this, where we have launched now 16, we had a few year, a year and a half off with COVID, but 16 separate classified briefings to business and academic communities and others across America about the challenge that China presents. And let me be clear, when I talk about China, we make very, very clear that our beef is with the Communist Party of China and the authoritarian leadership of President Xi. It is not with the Chinese people. It is not with the Chinese diaspora and obviously not Chinese Americans. But we have had the intelligence community, which we're again, a little uncertain about this, come in and show in detail um, 
what China is doing in terms of intellectual property theft, what they're doing in terms of investment in key technology races. I still think that is the economic challenge of our time going forward, China, in, in the race around technology. But that was an, almost a precursor to this kind of leaning in. An intelligence community in the past would never want to go out and brief a bunch of college presidents or a bunch of business leaders, uh, even when they were in a skiff. So I think this uh, approach, of, we've got this information, as you said, and I think you said it better than I, the truth will win out. People get the truth. Uh, but we've got to share that truth if, if we want to both convince people and, and I, again, if we could step back to where I started, this macro question of authoritarianism versus democracies, both in our country and around the world, we all ought to take a moment here and while we continue to be self-critical about how we can improve, but recognize that uh, uh, there's an awful lot more people around the world who I believe would follow the lead of the Ukrainian people um, voting with their feet and voting at sometimes with even putting their lives on the line that they would rather have a free and open society. Senator, I want to come back to the question we began talking about, and that's uh, cyber attacks. Uh, earlier today uh, on uh, Andrea Mitchell's show, uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, the former head of uh, the NSA, said, I fully expect in coming days and weeks, you're going to see much more aggressive use of cyber by Russia. I'm wondering, first, whether you agree with that. Second, I'm wondering uh, how well prepared you think the United States and its NATO allies are to deal with Russian cyber attacks. And then third and most important, what should we do? Should we respond in kind if we're hit by cyber attack? Well, let me take those in order. Uh, do I expect Russia to up its game on cyber? Absolutely. And I think, again, this is where Putin miscalculated. I think he felt like he could use his, in a sense, B team to try to take down some of the Ukrainian networks, saving his A team and the tools, because once you put a cyber tool out there and it's discovered, it's hard to be reused. Uh, he didn't have to move to that A team within um, within Ukraine. He's been proven wrong. And again, one of the most remarkable things is that the internet's still up and these images that Ukrainians are taking of the, the Russian atrocious actions, you know, it's being released to the world. So should we see, expect more? Absolutely. And I think he's probably been reserving. We may have to use that A-team to, uh, to finish the, the uh, continue his, his invasion in Ukraine. So that's not off the table. But as these sanctions bite and you look at the fact that the Russian markets didn't even open today because the ruble was in free fall because of this un united effort, uh, I do think we need to be prepared uh, for high level his A-team attacks against the West and whether they start with nations in NATO that have weaker cyber uh, controls or whether they go straight against um, the United States, Britain, France, Germany, uh, time will tell, number one. Number two, as you pointed out in some of your books, you know, when a top tier nation uses their top talent to attack in the cyber domain, chances are we will not be 100% effective at, um, at keeping the adversary out. And I do want to give CISA under Jan Easterly, you know, credit uh, for the fact that they've got their shields up to use this, you know, an old Star Trek an analogy uh, where we put everybody you know, on defense and, the, and, and those defenses are, I think, as well positioned. But as you know, it's not a question, they may break through, it's the question of how quickly we can get back up resiliency. And, um, and that's one of the reasons why 
Rob Portman and I and, and Gary Peters and Susan Collins and others, we've got kind of a no-brainer legislation that we almost attach to the defense authorization bill that needs to be passed this week that would say when there's a cyber attack against a critical infrastructure, that needs to be reported to the government, not because we need to prosecute someone, we'll actually give people immunity, but so we can share with others in the private sector real-time that information. Um, you and I have talked about the fact that when Colonial Pipeline was hit a year ago uh, by Russian cyber criminals, um, you know, enormous gas lines, there was another pipeline that was hit at the same moment, never reported itself to the government. We've got to make sure we have that at least disclosure so we can be resilient uh, going forward. And then third, you know, where it, it overall he heads from here, we've got the possibilities of obviously Russian GRU and other services, their spy services attacking us, but we also more likely will see it first, um, in a sense, Russian malware, or I'm sorry, Russian ransomware criminal gangs really launch uh, a number of, of attacks and assaults. And uh, again, I think we will probably see that in the uh, coming days and weeks as Putin um, tries to lash out against these crippling level of sanctions we put on him. So, Senator, just to ask the hardest question of all in some ways, if we can attribute attacks to Russia on the United States or, or other uh, NATO allies, should uh, the United States and its partners respond in kind? A different way to put that is, should we consider cyber attacks as military attacks within the, the framework uh, of our NATO commitment, Article 5 attacks where we're committed to help defend each other uh, as if we were hit, uh, if, it, if it's one of our NATO allies. What do you think? David, I absolutely believe that a cyber attack could constitute an Article 5 violation. I gave you the example earlier of uh, an attack against Ukraine bleeding into Poland, a NATO nation, or even hitting and hurting NATO, tr NATO troops, um, number one. There's been a reason, as you know, David, again, you know more about this longer than I, but that we have not had a tit-for-tat cyber escalation policy. We have always reserved the right to respond to a cyber attack in another domain, uh, kinetic or otherwise. And the reason for that is, you know, quite honestly, um, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of cyber weapons. The Russians have the same. These can be extraordinarily destructive. And if you get into the cyber escalation, you don't know where it would end. You don't really know if you let a piece of malware out there that's got a worm in it, where it may end up, particularly if it's not a single piece of malware, but hundreds or potentially thousands of pieces of malware released simultaneously. Uh, you know, and I think hopefully the audience knows there was a, something called the NotPetya attack back in 2017, Russia against Ukraine. It spread across the West, shut down and cost billions of dollars for the damage, even shut down the English healthcare system for a while, even responded back and hit Russian systems. So those kinds of pieces of malware, once they're out in the wild, they don't know where they, you don't know where they um, they end up. So should we keep all our, our capabilities on the table? Should we uh, be prepared to use those capabilities? Absolutely, yes. I don't believe though that we should pre-commit on those until we see what kind of, um, uh, Russian activities take place here. This is this has been a realm of hypothetical questions for years. Uh, the, the challenge is, um, you know, it, it could become real a lot sooner. And when this crisis passes, I do think we need, on an international basis, to say, you know, you take down a healthcare system, 
and it's, whether it's a cyber criminal or a government, we're going to have a lower attribution level and we're going to hold you responsible. There needs to be the filling out of the equivalent of a cyber Geneva Convention uh, rules of the road here, um, not only in terms of cyber crimes, but as we see now in terms of using these tools and in, in the acts of war. Senator, last quick question, but it's, it's an important one. You sent letters on, on Friday to uh, our leading social media companies, uh, Meta, which runs Facebook, Alphabet, Reddit, uh, asking them to take action to prevent Russian state media, Russian propaganda operations from appearing on their platforms. I want to ask, have you received any responses yet to your request that they take that action? Well, David, the short answer is yes. Virtually every one of these platforms has taken down some of the Russian activity or demonetized, so they're not making money off of RT or Russian ads uh, on real time during the platforms. That's good. I commend these these platforms. But the truth is, in, at this moment in time, when these companies have such enormous power, I shouldn't have to rely on their goodwill. We need some rules of the road on, on social media. I've been advocating this for some time, you know, taking on Section 230 uh, immunity that they have in this country. I met with the British last week. They've got a kind of a, a different way to approach some of the, the ills that come out of these, uh, these major platform companies, international in, in scope, who frankly have have no restrictions on them at all. So yes, I commend them right now, but we need some rules of the road going forward because whether it's in peace or war, they have, these companies have unparalleled power. Senator Mark Warner, uh, just a, a very helpful, uh, broad uh, discussion of the intelligence and other issues related to the war in Ukraine. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, David, thank you so much as well. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.